This is Kate Moorhead Carroll in the podcast, Find It. Today I'm going to have a conversation with my very wonderful organist and choir master, Canon for Music, I think is your title officially, Tim Tuller. Tim and I have worked together for 14 years almost here at St. John's Cathedral, and it's a, a privilege to have you with me today, Tim. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Tim, I, I wanted to begin by just... Um, having you tell us a little bit about your life. Um, it's a it's a rare breed to play the organ. So how, how in the world, as a child, did you become interested in the instrument? Yeah, so I, uh, I first became interested in the instrument when I was very, very young, probably three years old, maybe. I actually, um, I, I heard a, uh, an organ on some kind of recording, and I actually don't think it was a classical or, or any kind of sacred um, um, music uh, recording, I think it was a pop music recording of some kind, that had an organ sound on it, and I was immediately entranced by it, and um, I asked my folks what that was, and they said it was an organ, and it, right, right immediately I was very interested, and um, actually before I could even read, I would have my parents look up pictures of organs in encyclopedias and so forth, and I was just, just transfixed from the very beginning. Um, when I was very young, my parents didn't go to church. However, we did live across the street um, from a Presbyterian church. Just happened to be about across the street from where we lived. And in uh, the spring and early summer of 1983, I would have been seven, um, that my mom started attending church and would take me along. And they had an actual real uh, pipe organ there. And I was immediately sucked into the hymns and the organ music. I was just transfixed by it. And so at that point, it just never never really left me. Um, about a year later, I started taking organ lessons on a little electronic organ in the house. And I kept doing it. And finally, I got more serious into high school, got a more serious teacher, started taking lessons on the um, organ at the Presbyterian Church. They were, they were kind enough to let me actually take, actually take organ lessons there. And I started uh, taking lessons. And then uh, went on to major in organ in college and grad school, and here we are. So it was pretty, pretty consistent right through. That's amazing, Tim, the level of focus that you had e even as a young child. Um, are you a person that believes that people are born with certain gifts? I mean, that's a, that's a really narrow for focus yeah, for a child. Yeah, yeah. To, um, you seem to know exactly what you wanted to do yeah, very yeah. early on. It did seem that way, yeah. Yeah, I do think, uh, I, I think uh, at least in my case, I mean, I know some people that, you know, struggle to figure out what they want to do for quite a while, and some maybe never figure it out, but I, I certainly knew right from the beginning what I wanted to do, and never really wavered, honestly. I know you graduated summa cum laude, I think it was, um, and you, I mean, I see you and hear you, you practice, how many hours a day do you practice, and tell us a little bit about how you practice? I mean, how do you how do you organize and structure your practice time? Yeah, it's a very difficult question to actually answer how much I practice because some of it is 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 mental practice as well and things like that. When I was in college, I actually um, practiced um, sometimes eight ten hours a day actual physical practice. Now, obviously, once you get uh, get out and have a, a you know a, a job and a career and all, you can't do that anymore. I mean, it's almost like a monastic sort of discipline at that stage. You're just kind of really, you know, grinding it out and learning pieces and developing your skills. Um, but yes, so I have to make sure I, I divide my practice time between the weekly music that we do here at church, obviously every Sunday, and then our special services coming up, any recitals that I'm doing, various other things. And then there's also a portion of practice time that has to be set aside for purely athletic reasons, if you will. 
um, just to keep um, keep your chops up, keep your technique up. And a lot of that happens on the piano, actually. I come from a, a school of organ playing that puts a great focus on piano technique and maintain that. And so I spend a fair bit of time on the piano as well to maintain maintain my skills. I probably averages out to three hours a day, some days a lot more, some days less, I'd say, probably. And how much time do you spend on the physical technique of exercising your fingers when you said sitting down at a piano keyboard? Right. What, what's that like every it day? It takes at least an hour and a half to two hours at least once a week to do that. And it's basically like going to the gym would be for uh, a football player. Um, you know, a football player would spend time in the weight room lifting weights, and uh, that's exactly the same thing. Uh, for this. So it's not actually pieces, but it's practicing exercises, scales, arpeggios, the nuts and bolts of that. That's what uh, the piano stuff does. So at least once a week, preferably twice or more if there's time, but at least once a week for about, uh, about two solid hours. That's amazing. I've also seen you play pieces with your feet. Yeah. <laughs> How much time do you spend practicing with your feet? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the great things, one of the things about organ playing that's unique to the organ almost unique to the organ. There is such a thing as a pedal piano, but it's very, very, very rare and hardly ever seen. So yes, um, for organ recitals and things, um, audiences love to see stuff with your feet because it's so unique. It's something that you don't do on piano or any, you know, the other instruments. Um, so yeah, I spent quite a bit of time practicing the pedals as well. Probably about, I just spent probably about the first 20 minutes of my daily practice on pedal work. Uh, and the same idea, you actually can do scales and so forth exercises with the feet, just like with the hands or anything else. Wow. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about the pipe organ. How was it developed? What is its history? And why do you think it helps us more, more than other instruments? Why was it chosen um, by the church as an instrument um, of accompaniment to help us in worship? Right. There's about three doctoral dissertations there. <laughs> so, um, first of all, the history of it is very interesting. The history of the organ goes back to about the third century BC in, um, in ancient Greece, specifically the Hellenistic period, around, around about the late third century um, BC, uh, in the area around Alexandria, um, actually. And um, the instrument they had was known as a hydralis. And it's kind of been lost in the midst of time, a lot of the details about this instrument, but it was a small organ with pipes that was actually operated by a system of um, varying water levels, hence the name hydralis. And they somehow rigged these water levels and tanks, as I understand it, some type, to actually function to blow wind into the pipes when the pipes were played. And also another thing people don't realize is that the keyboard, as we know it, the same keyboard that's used for pianos, harpsichords, organs, clavichords, all the stringed instruments was developed around this time too. And it was originally developed for the organ. Um, and it was based on um, the um, 12 notes of the Western musical scale, which of course the Greeks had a huge hand in developing, Pythagoras and so on. And so that's where the, the first mentions of organs come from. And they were known in, through ancient Rome and the whole um, Greek sort of world, Mediterranean world at that time. After the Roman Empire collapsed, those instruments vanished. Um, they were, there's no record of them after that that we know of. There were organs in the Byzantine Empire, we know, and we think they were actually the first organs to use bellows to power the pipes, the wind into the pipes. Um, that would have been around the 7th, 8th century. 
The interesting thing is the, um, you can actually pin down the first record that we know of, of an organ in a religious setting. Hmm. And it was in the year 812, after, the, uh, after Charlemagne had been uh, crowned the first Holy Roman Emperor, he commissioned an organ for his chapel uh, in the year 812. And we don't know much more about it than that. But that is the first indication we have of the organ being used in a, in a Christian space. Wow. Yeah, and then uh, there's an interesting um, uh, story of an organ in Winchester Cathedral. It was called the Winchester organ. This would have been in the 10th century. It was, we know that it was, had about 400 pipes, which would be nothing by today's standards. Our organ at St. John's has 4,000 pipes. 10, wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, but this thing would have about 400 pipes, so at the time it would have been very big, and it took two people to play it, and the records say, it took 70 men to pump the air to play this thing. Uh, and it was said to have been heard all over Winchester whenever it was played. Um, so that was Winchester Cathedral. And, and then as the Middle Ages went on and greater and greater spaces, larger cathedrals were built, there are accounts of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris employing organists as early as the 14th century. And a couple of the reasons they became well loved for uh, those big spaces is that they were loud enough, frankly, to carry hmm. the sound through those spaces. Hmm. The other instruments wouldn't have been. And not only that, the sustaining quality of an organ pitch, the fact that you hit a note and it stays, it keeps playing, it doesn't decay, like a piano or other instruments, gives a really strong underpinning for supporting the human voice hmm. singing. Uh, so though, for those were a couple of reasons I, that, that it was favored as an instrument, but also just the grandeur of it. Uh, and as certainly as the centuries went on, the organs got bigger and grander and larger. They really fit the architecture of these spaces very well, hmm. visually, as well as the pragmatic point that they would support congregational singing and they had enough power to fill those vast edifices. So in a sense, you're saying that the sound was as majestic as the architecture. It would kind of match the oh, architecture. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and it could carry uh, yeah. to those high ceilings and, yeah. ac and across those huge naves and transepts. That yep. that does make sense. Um, and help people's voices carry, too. Yep. Exactly. Why do you think the sound of an organ... Um, it doesn't drown out the human voice. It accentuates the human voice. Why is that? Well, the organ, uh, as, uh, the, or especially modern organs, uh, especially have a really rich variety of overtones. It's a huge, um, just wonderful foundation um, of sound. And, and, and as you, if you learn about how organs work, there's, there's a variety of pitches being produced from very, very, very low, very far, far lower than any human voice could ever imagine singing up to far higher. There's this huge range of frequencies. And so the human voice manages to kind of fit right in the middle of that very mm. well. Mm. And so you're kind of getting supported from both sides. You're getting supported from the, the high end and the low end. And the human voice fits, fits right in the middle. Just this nice little support for the, the vocal range that people have. This is really a more philosophical question, but um, why do you think that music is is the most adequate way to express our love of God? Um, what is it about music that seems to be so profound and transcends other? Why don't we just talk at God? Why, why do we sing? Yeah, it's very it's very fundamental and visceral almost in a lot of ways. One yeah. of the things I've always wondered is, um, and, and it seems to be true um, um, across cultures, in that 
if you take a, a musical interval and you look at it mathematically, like say an octave, or any interval that sounds pleasing to our ears, it'll always be a simple whole mathematical ratio. Why is that? Wow, why, that's fascinating. Why, why is that? Why would that be? Why wouldn't it be uh, maybe some complex number or something like that? But if you look through the scale and the intervals and the ones that sound pleasing to our ears, um, they're all simple mathematical ratios. It's baked in our very DNA to respond to this. Uh, and, um, it's a kind of harmony. It is. Of no, of, I mean, mathematical harmony. Absolutely. And it, uh, the ancient Greeks talked about this quite a bit, Pythagoras and so on. That, um, you know, you've heard the music of the spheres and so on. But there is something that's innate in us. There's no way when we hear, a, like a, as a child or anybody really, hear a musical interval that sounds pleasing, there's no way we know, oh, yeah, that's because it's got an even mathematical ratio going on between the frequencies. No one would think that, but it does. It sounds good to us. Why is that? It's something very, 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 very fundamental hmm. to, um, to our... There's being. something about creation. When God created the world, God basically made order out of chaos. Right, right, right. And, and you're talking about ratios that are orderly, that, yeah. that, that line up. Um, the, most, the most subjective possible thing, a pleasing tone, can be explained in some sense by a very objective mathematical formula. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> you think We think of science as having everything to do with math. Uh -huh. I don't think we think of music that way, but yeah. it does. But yeah. it does. Right. And I definitely don't think we think of worship as having to do yeah. with math, but in a sense, yeah. it, it really does. Well, let's turn for a minute to the architecture of, of St. John's Cathedral and of many um, European cathedrals in general. Um, tell us about how... Um, how and why people built these cathedrals with music in mind. Oh yeah, well they um, obviously our cathedrals in a, in a cruciform shape like um, many traditional cathedrals. And um, these, um, these spaces really, uh, you know, a lot of it depends on the materials you use and so forth and so on, but they really do lend a, a great um, grandeur to music generally speaking, given the, 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 um, the reverberation qualities and so on and so forth. There's also, Something special about how the music kind of rolls through those very those various spaces of the church. St. Mark's Cathedral in um, Venice, which is actually it's, a, it's Byzantine style, but they, they actually developed a very famous form of antiphonal, mu antiphonal music going on there um, in the um, 16th and 17th century, where you'd have various choirs stationed at various areas throughout, and they'd have sort of a call and response musical style that they would um, they would have, and brass choirs as well, and that was that was really heavily cultivated there. So the the Venetians really exploited the architectural possibilities of the cathedral almost to a unique degree, I think. But they all have these wonder, they, and each one is different, but they tend to really it tends to really um, the, sh the, the the shape the cathedrals are built in really tends to. Um, really provide an incredible um, acoustical sheen to the music that's that's um, made in those spaces. It's really wonderful. So there are certain kinds of material that are more conducive to the listening of oh, music. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about, I mean, the, the, the interior of our cathedral, for example. Mm -hmm. What is it made of and why? Why don't we put carpet in? <laughs> tell us well, a little yeah. bit about that. Uh, it's, it's very, uh, it, that's pretty straightforward, uh, you know, acoustically speaking. You want as hard a surface as possible. It'll the least porous surfaces possible. 
because um, anything that uh, soaks up sound waves, anything that's soft or porous, usually is to the detriment of, um, of music, certainly classical music or, or sacred music. You want that reverberation quality in there. It's, it, it's um, um, uh, classical music and sacred music in a dead space just really falls flat to the ear. To the point that even, even sometimes recording engineers, when you record uh, in a dead space, will add fake reverberation to the recordings to get it to sound like that. It's just, it's, um, it, it gives it a, a grandeur and a, a quality that you just can't get if you don't have that. You need that reverberation to give it a, um, to really give it the full sheen that it really requires. And organs need large spaces, right? Oh, the They're the just better. big, yeah. the larger the better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what would you say, if you had to pick your favorite organ in all the world, Tim, what, where, what organ would that be? Well, one of them would be the organ, um, the Skinner organ at Yale University. They have an incredible instrument there. Um, also, there's... Um, is that in Carnegie? That's in, that's in New Haven, right? Yeah, in Sprague Hall? Or, um, do you know what hall that's in? Because um, I should have heard that it's growing up there. It's me right now. It's okay. in their main concert hall. Okay. Um, Woolsey Hall? Woolsey, right? yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah, Woolsey Hall. That's an incredible instrument. That was Marcel Dupre's favorite American organ. Wow. There's also the um, Wanamaker organ, which is very famous in, in Philadelphia at the what used to be the Wanamaker department store. It's now... Um, Macy's. I may have even changed hands since then. How strange that it's in yeah. a store. And it's um, seven stories high by the 20s standard, so I think it's like 14 modern stories high. Wow. And it's got six keyboards, and they have organ recitals there twice a day, I think it is, just about, even mm -hmm. though they're, they're kind of small events. But that's an incredible, incredible instrument. It sounds it, more like an orchestra than an orchestra. It's, hmm. it's really amazing. And You'll go there and there'll be organ concerts going on. Wonderful art, wonderful organ recitals, whilst people are shopping right underneath it. How strange. And sometimes you'll even see some of the customers get a little bit upset when the organ gets loud because they're trying to buy something in this wonderful organ. <laughs> it's just the craziest thing. It but yeah, so that's one of them. Oh, I could go on forever. I mean, um, Chartres Cathedral in Paris has wonderful organs. St. Paul's in London. Mm. Um, there's, there's just so many. It's hard to even narrow it down to a top ten. That's great. Tell us about the organ at, here at St. John's Cathedral. Uh, what is it yeah. like? So this organ, um, we're very, very fortunate and blessed to have the instrument that we do. The core of this organ was a 1983 Austin organ that was built, um, it was put in, um, in like I say, 1983, early 1984. And it was a wonderful instrument, but it wasn't movable. And the... Um, the console used to be over where the credence table currently sits hmm. uh, in the um, in the nave, and I believe this was done just after they renovated the nave to put the um, the to bring the altar out yeah. and to expand the arch in the middle there, and and, and bring the altar more out to the people. That's when this instrument went in, and it served uh, it served the church very well. But but uh, right before I came on in two thousand six, um, and a little before. Um, my predecessor, John Barry, um, set in motion the project to get the current instrument in, which was, it used the core 1983 Austin organ, and, but it had a rebuild, it was rebuilt and supplemented by Roger Colby. So what we have now is a Colby-Austin organ, mm -hmm. sort of a hybrid. And at that time, they added the West organ, 
which is the part of the organ on the, the west wall, which has uh, the protruding um, trumpet on Shemad, amongst other things, that was added. And the whole rest of the organ was supplemented, renovated, added to, tweaked up, and they put in the movable console that we have now, which is so wonderful that you can pull out and have for organ recitals. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, most of the project was largely funded by Claudia Gordon. Yeah, that was quite something. Yeah. And hearing the pipes just surround you when mm -hmm. you play that antiphonal yes. organ is, is a special thing. Yeah. Um, and speaking of special things, um, many people don't realize that um, in a liturgical church such as ours, in an ancient church, we move through various seasons and, and we see the colors change and we read different passages of scripture, but tell us about how the hymnal was set up so that there's different music for different seasons and, and why is that so? Oh yeah, well different seasons have different characters to them, musically as well as um, you know, um, scripturally and liturgically. Um, and so yeah, the hymnal is set up, I, I'm a real big fan of our, our hymnal, always have, and I think it's, it's got a lot of great stuff and it's organized very well. But yeah, the um, the uh, the hymns for um, the hymns for Lent season tend to be more on obviously on the penitential side and so on, and the music tends to reflect that. They tend to just have a more of a more of a Lenten feel to them, less mm -hmm. celebratory, less you know, um, and that that kind of thing. But yeah, the, the hymn was laid out very well, and the organ you'll you'll notice if you listen to the liturgical seasons, there's a character change to the type of music that I'll select for preludes and postludes. Um, and so on, and even the choir music that we sing, it all tries to hone in on what that overall, the overall character of the season is. It's almost like you and I are telling a story of Jesus together, but the music is going to reflect the, right. the mood Underpin of buttress. the season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So, um, as we move into the fall and into, um, the season of Advent, um, what are some of the things that you love most about about uh, the fall and then and then about the season of Advent? Well, um, just just kind of a backwards uh, Advent is by far my favorite season of the church year um, and I particular I think that the um, The Episcopal Church. I think that's the season that we really get right a lot of churches a lot of denominations kind of ignore that um, a little bit more less and just kind of go straight to Christmas but there is such an incredible body of wonderful, specifically Advent music, not only for organ, but for choir, the hymns, the whole thing, the, even the liturgical colors that we use and so on and so forth, the decorations, I, I just absolutely love. Um, the, um, the seasonal fall has, has some good stuff into it as well. We have, of course, the, the what's called ordinary time, which um, goes from after Pentecost through to Advent. It's a long stretch. It can be one of the more boring seasons of the church year in some ways, and that uh, especially on the summer green season, not particularly a lot necessarily tends to happen. But you get into the fall, we have some wonderful feast days. We have St. Michael and All Angels. That's always Saint, a good one. Yes, yeah. wonderful. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi. And my single favorite Sunday of the year, by, by, by far, uh, All Saints Sunday, the Feast of All Saints. Mm. Uh, that's a wonderful um, time. There's lots of great organ music written for that. Wonderful choral music. Probably five of my top ten favorite choral anthems are specifically All Saints anthems. Well, because in All Saints we we believe that our that the deceased are singing with us, and music is one of those yeah. things that sort of transcends time. And right. certainly in, in in the Book of Revelation, it doesn't say that people talk in heaven. It says that they sing and the oh. angels sing. So that's pretty profound. Well, um, 
Tim, as we look across, as I think about the years that you and I have served together, the music program has grown a lot in terms of the uh, concerts that we provide, in terms of not just even songs, but, and this fall, you're going to be performing in the first uh, real opera that we've done in, in the nave. Um, so tell us about how you feel that cathedrals ought to be um, places where art and music are expanded and celebrated and, and performed. There's a term I really like, and uh, the first I ever heard or saw it was it was in 2001, I think it was 2001, 2001 or 2002. I was at an order recital at St. Paul's Church in, um, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the great John Scott was playing that night. And he was, of course, at the time, the organist at uh, St. Paul's in London, one of the very top organists in the world. And there was a phrase on his um, leaflet, his, his, his organ recital program, that said, Ars Ecclesia, which is Latin basically for church and the arts, mm. inseparable. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's, that is a great philosophy. The church and the arts have been inseparable. And if it hadn't been for the medieval Christian church, there would be no music as we know it. There would be no classical music as we know it. There would be no symphony as we know it. There would be no Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, Bach, any of that as we know it. Mm. All of Western music was incubated in the medieval church, and we wouldn't have had it without that. It's, it's funny because we usually think of the institutional church as sort of the enemy these days, you know, the house of, of hierarchy and the no. place where where no. there was so much um, patriarchy and, no. and racism and things um, but there was a lot of good that was done, and one of them is 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 endorsing and supporting the arts, isn't it? hundred percent, and and not just of course music, but in, in but the the, the um, visual arts as well. Obviously, yeah. the painting, all that was cultivated there. Uh, architecture, yeah. obviously, was 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 cultivated there. It, 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's so interesting in the paradox paradox of this fallen world. We have. Uh, some of the greatest gifts from God come through the church and some and some egregious sins as well but there certainly has been a wonderful history of our relationship with the arts um, well so Tim tell us about um, any of the anthems we should pay attention to this fall as we're thinking about um, the fall season yes well we're um, just this very um, this very Sunday we're going to be singing a piece uh, talking about the theme of home which is our theme for the uh, pledge this se uh, pledge season and it's going to be a motet by Anton Bruckner entitled Lacus Iste, which is Blessed is the House of the Lord. And it, and it talks about that. It's an acapella piece. It's going to be very nice. We've got um, a one, some wonderful music lined up for, um, for uh, the um, Feast of um, St. Michael and All Angels. We're singing one of my very, very favorite hymns, Christ the Fair Glory, on mm. that Sunday. That's the 24th, I believe, of September. And then um, we have, so we'll, uh, as usual, we'll, have, we'll have really good stuff lined up for All Saints. And in um, Advent, we've got some couple of new anthems that I'm going to be pulling out for Advent procession this year, uh, which will be nice. We actually have a piece by um, um, uh, Al Alec Rowley, who's an English composer that we've never had before that we're going to be singing then, and a few new pieces. Um, that are going to be coming out. Sounds wonderful, and as always, very rich. And I know you do a lot of research in searching for the right anthem at the right season. Well, Tim, we're so grateful that um, you know that you found uh, and heard that organ music as a little boy, and that you decided to become an organist because you're 
such a jewel in our community, and we're, we're grateful to have you with us. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. Thank you for joining me in the podcast, Find It. Remember that if you keep searching for the divine presence, you will find it. I want to invite you, if you're interested in hearing more of these podcasts, to subscribe. Just hit the subscribe button and you will be informed of new episodes. And before we part ways, I pray that God will bless you and hold you, give you peace. Until we meet again.